0: G'day everyone. I got a hello from the front. Hello everyone. <laughs> I'll pray, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father we thank you that you have revealed yourself once and for all in your Son uh, and we thank you that we meet him in your word. So today as we hear your voice help us not to harden our hearts as those in the Old Testament did. But instead, we pray that you'll give us a keen mind to grapple with it, but soft hearts to receive it as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Commonwealth Games has been on uh, TV the last week or so. I don't know if you've got into it or not. I've struggled to get interested in the Commonwealth Games. Uh, the whole thing just seems designed for Australia to smash people and build Australian egos and that sort of thing. I like the fact they even split the United Kingdom into four different countries just so we can certainly top the medal tally. You know, it's, it's good for us. Uh, but especially the swimming, I, I, it gets a bit boring after a while, I find, that when Australia gets gold, silver and bronze I, I, in every event and you start to wonder, do these countries even have swimming pools who we're, we're swimming against? I'm joking, but... Uh, And I could never compete, so I'm not belittling their achievement. Uh, Well, I am a little. But uh, that's what happens where you have a competition, basically, where you remove all the countries who are competitive in something, like China and America and Germany, all the countries that are are rich and have facilities for training, Uh, which is why the one event I like watching is the running. Because it's interesting, the one area Australia doesn't dominate is running. Uh, because in the end, you don't need to be wealthy, you don't have to have all the best training equipment in the world to run. Uh, it's just you. Uh, it's much more of a level playing field. See, what helps you win a running race, especially a long distance one? Uh, I was watching one of the races, and suddenly the, the girl that was winning, I noticed, had the name McColgan. I thought, ah, oh, clearly. And the look of her, she was very tall and thin. I thought, it must be a distant cousin of mine from from Scotland. But why was she so good? Because she was so thin that 's why, and other reasons as well there 's lots of reasons, as I say, the two I see is the great long distance runners they 're incredibly thin uh, there 's no excess weight that they 're carrying, and just sheer determination as they put that camera on them as they 're running on the street, you just see that look in their eyes that they are just fixed on the goal they 're looking at the finishing line. One of the most common images of the New Testament for the Christian life is that we are in a running race and and the picture is that it's not a sprint it's a long distance race and that is the main image of today's passage so let's get into it my first heading is finishing the race this is the first couple of verses so look with me at verse one It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about last week's passage in chapter 11. He's talking about all the Old Testament heroes we saw in that great chapter. He's talking about Abraham, he's talking about Sarah and Moses and Rahab and all these others. And what was it about them in that chapter that made them heroes? It wasn't that they were perfect. In fact, you might also call them a list of notorious sinners if if you read out their names in another context, they all messed up in all sorts of different ways. So what was it? It was that they finished the race. They kept the faith. They kept trusting God. And what did their faith look like? What do we see was the essence of their faith from their examples. It was the way they trusted God and trusted his promises, even when they couldn't yet see what had been promised to them. So they trusted that God would do what he promised to do in the future, despite their current situation. So even when it looked totally hopeless, even when it looked like there is no way God could do what he promised them, they trusted God's promises for the future. So if you look back to chapter 11, you see these great examples. You've got ones where there's enemies on every side, you've got ones where they get thrown into dens of lions, where they get put into a fiery furnace. They kept trusting God no matter what, even to the point of death, because they knew God promises something beyond this life. Remember, they looked forward to what they couldn't see yet, but they trusted that God would do it. That's faith. And our faith as Christians is exactly the same. Christian faith is to trust that God has forgiven us because of Jesus. We look back to his death and resurrection, but then our faith looks forward like theirs does. It looks forward to Jesus' return that trusts. When Christ returns, he will return to save us if we're found trusting in him, not to judge us as we deserve. And we are promised a new creation. We will be with him forever. And we trust that whatever happens in this life, that will be coming. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's why Christians have been happy to die for 2,000 years rather than deny Jesus. Because we look forward to something better than this life. We look forward to a new creation where there is no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. That's what faith is. Trusting the promises of God. And so he says there in verse 1, As you run the race as you keep trusting Jesus, remember you are not alone. There's this whole cloud of people who are witnesses to God's faithfulness. So run the race, keep the faith like all these others who've gone before you. And what's the key to finishing the race? Look at the rest of verse one there. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Think about those Kenyan long distance runners. At the, uh, at the Commonwealth Games, they shed any extra kilos to make it possible to run. They make sure they wear the lightest possible clothes, the lightest possible shoes. Why carry any extra weight if you don't have to? Well, it's the same with following Jesus. If the most important thing is that you keep trusting Jesus, and I assume that is the most important thing to you, if the most important thing is that you keep trusting Jesus, well, then you want to get rid of anything that might distract you. You want to get rid of anything that might stop you following Jesus. Isn't that right? Now, obviously, that includes, if you look there, the sin that so easily ensnares us. I think that is the truest picture of what sin does. It ensnares you. It's like when you you walk off the path and you get stuck in the blackberry bush with with, with all the thorns. It slows you down. It, It drags you away from where you're going. And eventually, it shipwrecks your faith. To run the race for Jesus, we cannot tolerate ongoing sin in our life. We need to deal with it. We need to throw it off. I can't help but think of Jesus' words here where he says, cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. Gouge out your eye if it's causing you to sin. If there's a sin in your life that you are tolerating, it might be drunkenness, it might be gossip, it might be pornography, it might be coveting. Whatever it is, deal with it. Repent of it. Get rid of it. But it's interesting, it's not just sin that he's talking about here. He says, lay aside every weight. You see, often there are things that are not sin in and of themselves, but they hold us back from living for Jesus. You remember the rich young man who said he wanted to follow Jesus? And what did Jesus say to him? He said, well, first go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. Jesus does not say that to everyone, but he's perceived that for that man, he truly loved his wealth more than he wanted to follow Jesus. And unless he was willing to throw off that weight, he would never follow Jesus. So this passage asks us, are there things in your life that are actually holding you back as a Christian that you need to get rid of? Sometimes it's our fixations with a hobby, might be sport. Sometimes it's actually our work, we need to change our attitude to it, make it less of an idol. Some people, I think, sometimes need to go get a new job because their job is, is so all-consuming that it's taking them away from following Jesus. Sometimes it's unhelpful relationships where, where people drag us away from Jesus. I've seen it with wealthy Christians when they buy a weekender. Before you know it, they're never at church because they're always down the coast or up the coast at their house. The point is, if it is holding you back, if it is stopping you running hard for Jesus, throw it aside, throw off anything that stops you running the race for Jesus. But the other thing you see in those runners is, as I said before, that single-minded focus. And we need the same focus. Look again from verse one. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. One of my favourite scenes from any movie is the one that's come up on the screen is Up. Is it, who's seen the movie Up? Those who had small children around a certain time. It's a, a Pixar sort of movie. And in it, there's a talking dog called Doug. Doug the dog. If you remember Doug, uh, he's just this really friendly dog who's meant to be showing them around. He's meant to be showing them the way. Uh, but he always gets distracted by squirrels. And here's our next slide there, Marlene. So there he is, I've just met you and I love you, but then squirrel. And he looks away. And that scene and that phrase, squirrel, has actually entered our family lingo. So if we're sitting talking and someone gets distracted, we go, ah, squirrel, squirrel. If someone gets distracted, it's just part of the way we, we operate. Well, the reality is the Christian life is hard, it has its ups and downs, and it is so easy to get distracted. As much by the good things as the bad things. There are so many squirrels. That's the reality. It's so easy to get distracted and just start to live for this life. Rather than keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so to avoid that, we need to work at keeping our eyes on Jesus. We look back to Jesus. We look back to all that he's done for us. We can remove the squirrel now, Marlene. Every day, remind yourself that Jesus died for your sins. Remind yourself, Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus has defeated death. I actually think the best habit for a Christian is every day to begin by praying, Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me and rose again for my salvation. Just every day, whatever else you do, start the day by thanking God for what Jesus has done for you. Every day, calibrate your mind to remember what Jesus has done, the source of your faith. But we also fix our eyes forward. We also look forward to Jesus' return. Every day we need to remind ourselves this world is not where it's at. This world is not the the greatest thing. We need to remind ourselves our Lord Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavens. And one day he will come back to bring in his kingdom once and for all. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't get distracted. Don't fix your eyes on the things of this world. Don't fix your eyes on all those things that are so easily distracting. That's how we finish the race. That's how we hold on to the faith. And can I say, the best way to fix our eyes on Jesus is to do the two things that the book of Hebrews has challenged us to do over and over and over again. There are two things that have just come up over and over again as we've gone through Hebrews. The first is, listen to God speak by his word every day as I prayed at the start from the book of Hebrews, today if you hear his voice. And then secondly, meet together as often as you can to encourage one another. It is not rocket science how we fix our eyes on Jesus. Read his word every day, do not give up meeting together. But there is one thing that rocks people's faith more than anything else and that thing is suffering. And especially when that suffering is because you are a Christian. So that brings me to the second part of our talk, persevering through suffering. And this is verses 2 to 13. So just imagine at the Commonwealth Games, if they added an extra element to the marathon. This might actually make me more likely to watch it. Uh, If it isn't hard enough to run the 42 kilometres over all the bumps and hills, just imagine if they then got a whole heap of people to line the whole course and yell abuse at you as you run. And then they even gave them rocks and said, throw it at the marathon runners. As I say, I'd be more likely to watch the marathon if this happened. But being serious, that is the Christian life for many Christians. We have been living in our culture in a a strange anomaly of history. For many Christians in our world and for most of history, the reality is the Christian life is to have rocks thrown at you, to be abused for your faith. You see, as if it isn't hard enough to run the race, as if it isn't hard enough to keep trusting Jesus with all our own issues, with our own struggles, with our own temptations, often Christians face abuse and persecution for following Jesus. So how do we not give up when that happens? Well, our passage has two answers to that question. The first is, remember the example of Jesus. See, Jesus is not just the object of your faith. He is not just the one you trust in He's also the great example of faith. He's the great example of persevering in your faith through suffering because he was looking forward to something beyond it. I love this little moment in the book of Hebrews because he's just given us all these great examples of faith from the Old Testament. Uh, He's gone from Abraham to David, from Sarah to Rahab, all these examples of people who've persevered through suffering and kept their faith. But now he gets to the end and he says, you know what? As great as chapter 11 was, as great as all those heroes were, the greatest example is Jesus himself. Look at verse 2. He says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. And then look at verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. See what he's saying? When you face suffering and you're tempted to give up, remember Jesus faced it too. Jesus was willing to suffer and endure the cross because he knew that wasn't the end of the story. He knew that his father was going to vindicate him and raise him from the dead and that in fact he was going to go to be seated at his father's right hand. You see, it's the same for us. Whatever suffering we face in this life, for following Jesus. the Bible is very clear. If you want an easy life, don't be a Christian. You will face some sort of persecution if you follow Jesus. But whatever it is, it's worth it. Because like Jesus, you are looking forward to something greater. God will vindicate you too. So do not give up. Jesus has shown us the way to face suffering. But more than that, the other key to persevering through suffering is to remember that God actually uses it for your good, This is my next heading there. Remember that God uses suffering for our good. When things go wrong for us and we suffer, what is a really common reaction? When people face suffering, a really common reaction is to doubt God. Why is God letting this happen to me? Or to even get angry at God. Why are you doing this? In fact, in most other religions, that's actually their understanding of suffering. Suffering is a sign that God or the gods are angry with you. And Christians can fall into that trap, giving up their faith when they face suffering and when they face hardship. That's why it's so important. We must get this right before the troubles come. We we must get this right because when you're in the midst of them, we're not in a place to hear what we need to hear. Get this right in the good times so that when the hard times come, you're ready. God does not promise that if you follow Jesus, life will be easy. In fact, the opposite. God promises that we will face persecution for following Jesus. And so when these things happen, they are not a sign that God is angry with you. When these things happen, they are not a sign that God does not love you. In fact, the opposite, it says, God actually uses these things to help us grow. And so here we're told God uses suffering like a good parent uses discipline. Now, you mustn't take this picture too far. It's not saying that every time a Christian suffers, they must have done something wrong that God is punishing them for, like a parent. That that might be the case sometimes. Paul actually warns the Corinthians church, you are suffering because of your sin that you're not dealing with. But Jesus tells us you can't assume that. You, You can't ever work that out. But what it is saying is when Christians face persecution, that's the suffering it's talking about here, suffering because of your faith, When we face that, God uses it for our benefit to help us grow. So look with me from verse 7. He says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, sadly, some modern parents don't discipline their children and we reap the consequences of that as a society but this just assumes if a parent loves their child they will discipline them that's, that's the assumption of most people throughout history if if a parent loves their child they will put boundaries around them they will discipline them though they, they will care when they do the wrong thing and I find verse 8 is really powerful in verse 8 it's saying if a parent doesn't discipline their child then you have to wonder if it's really their child And so he's saying there, if you never face any of this discipline as a Christian, if you never face any persecution for your faith, I mean, these Christians were facing the prospect of shedding blood for their faith. But if you never face anything, even mocking, you have to wonder if you're actually a child of God. Because if you stand up and say, I'm with Jesus, you will face some mockery at least. And can I tell you, this time has come. In modern Australia Uh, and it's what you saw with uh, the rugby league over the last couple of weeks and those manly I, I don't know the reality of their situation but when your workplace says we want you to wear this shirt that says you support taking pride in sin what will you do? This is the reality every Christian is going to face in Australia over the next few years. It will be hard but I think the Christian has to say with all the grace and all the gentleness they can muster I can't do that. But some Christians will, and they won't face mockery. Verse 8 challenges that person to ask, are you really a son of God then? If you're not willing to face the persecution. But back to discipline. Now, of course, some parents are not good examples. But on the whole, even if we don't appreciate our parents' discipline at the time, we look back and we're thankful for their discipline. Isn't that right? With long enough between At the time, I resented my sore bottom, but I realized with the benefit of hindsight, it taught me to respect my parents. Now, if we respect our parents, who sometimes get it right and sometimes get it wrong, how much more should we respect the discipline of our holy and righteous Heavenly Father? That's the point from verse 9. Look with me. It says, furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but He does it for our benefit so that we can share His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And that is the point there in verse 11. Look at verse 11. God actually uses our suffering especially persecution for our faith, to grow us in godliness, to grow us to be more like Jesus. And we know this is true, don't we? The reality is when this life is easy, when there are no struggles, we often actually forget God. We take God for granted. We think I can do this myself and we don't give God the honor and the glory and the credit that he deserves. Can I tell you, more Christians slide away from faith in Jesus, in my experience... More Christians slide away from faith in Jesus when life is going well than ever do when they are facing suffering and pain. Because when we face opposition and suffering, it refines our faith. Do I really trust Jesus? Am I actually willing to stand up and be counted for him when it's not popular, when it's not easy, and it drives us to prayer and reliance on God rather than on ourselves? The Apostle Paul puts it wonderfully in Romans chapter five. Here it is. He says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. It's really hard to grasp this truth in the middle of suffering. No suffering ever seems good at the time. That's what he says in this passage. It's only with the benefit of hindsight that you see this. When we look back, we see it. We see how God uses suffering to strengthen our faith and grow us in godliness. So I want to say to you, understand this now so that when the suffering comes, you don't despair. You don't throw up your hands and, and complain to God. You trust God. And you trust that as your loving heavenly father, he is working for your good. And so to finish, we do not know how much longer our race is, do we? Jesus might return tomorrow. Come Lord Jesus, I say. Uh, You might go to be with him tomorrow. As horrible as that is. Or you might have another 20 years. You might have another 40 years. You might have another 60 years. You might have another 80 years. Who knows? However long the race, this passage is saying you need to keep running you need to keep trusting Jesus. And I love verse 12 to finish. He says, Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Anyone older than 40 knows that after a while running, your whole body, but especially your knees, get sore. That's reality. Well, he says, they'll get sore, but do not let them break don't let them break. Make it easy for yourself. Throw off the weight that burdens you. Throw off the sin that entangles you. Keep on the straight path. That is the path that follows Jesus. And then your sore knees will not break. They will last the distance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us and run the race. But especially we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who did not scorn the cross, but suffered for our sake, knowing that he looked forward to your vindication. and the same way, Father, help us to run the race. Help us to throw off anything that might entangle us, anything that might hold us back. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we will persevere trusting him to the end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.